I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. We've all heard it more times than we care to, that democracy is in trouble. And it's true. Our love affair with democracy does appear to be going stale. Backsliding on the democratic ideal is now commonplace and speeding up all over the world, including Canada. That's why the Samara Center for Democracy holds a public lecture each year called In Defense of Democracy. This year, it was delivered by former Calgary Mayor Nahid Nanshi. So what I need to tell you today is as exhausted as you are, we got to keep fighting. As tired as we are of what has happened to us, we have to continue to build community together. His talk was recorded at the Toronto Public Library in November 2022. I've been retired now for about a year. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do with all this free time? So I left my office with stacks and stacks of books to read. I have notes on my phone that tell me what TV shows and movies came out in the last 10 years that I might want to think about. Something called Game of Thrones. And I have a big, big list of minor repairs that need to be done around my house. I have done none of those things in this year. I haven't even watched the TV shows. I find myself endlessly doom scrolling on my phone. And I find myself thinking of little things like the state of the world. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. How many of you are exhausted? by the last couple of years? How many of you feel like we get through one thing and then there's another thing? How many of us are just wanting this to be over, whatever this is? How many of us just want to go back to normal, whatever normal is? Here's the thing. I don't want to go back to normal. I don't want to go back to where it was before. So what I need to tell you today is as exhausted as you are, we got to keep fighting. As tired as we are of what has happened to us, we have to continue to build community together. Community is not something that happens to us. Community is something that we create. And these times are difficult. So as I've been thinking about the state of the world, I've been thinking about five simultaneous crises that we have run into over the last several years. The first one, of course, is the pandemic. Over my time as mayor, in the 136-year history of the city of Calgary, there had been precisely four states of emergency declared. Lucky me, I got to be the mayor for all four of them. 
But all of the things that I had dealt with, one of the things I learned is that community is so strong when we come together. And when people are called upon to come together, they do. So I thought the pandemic would be the same. I thought we would do what was needed to look after one another. We would make the simple sacrifices to be able to make sure that everyone in the community was safe. And for a while, we did. But we learned a bunch of other things. You know, Canadians, as you know, we tend to be pretty smug about stuff. And one of the things we're very smug about is our brilliant, wonderful universal healthcare system. The fact that everybody, prince or pauper, rich or poor, can be treated the same way. And the pandemic laid bare for so many of us the fact that maybe we're not quite as egalitarian as we thought we were. That maybe things hit people in different ways. I live in a neighborhood in Northeast Calgary, which I jokingly say is the least diverse neighborhood in Calgary. It's the least diverse neighborhood in Calgary. I see a couple of Calgarians in the audience laughing. It's the least diverse neighborhood in Calgary because there's no white people there. So I often joke that the city, they couldn't decide whether they should zone my neighborhood urban or suburban, so they went for turban. <laughs> now, Again, I can, say, I can say that joke in Northeast Calgary. Do not repeat that joke in downtown Toronto, whatever you do. At one point during the pandemic, my neighborhood had the highest rates of COVID infection of any subnational grouping in the world. And our former premier went on Punjabi radio and he said, I have many friends in the South Asian community. And I need to tell you something. I need you to be less hospitable because COVID is spreading. This did not go over well. And so I, the next day, made a comment in which I said, you know, with all due respect, sir, the problem is not that we are inviting strangers at the bus stop over for chai and samosas. The problem is my neighbors have to go to work every day. They don't have the luxury of sitting at home, working from home. They got to work in our grocery stores, in our warehouses. They have to work in the healthcare system, in the meatpacking plants. And we're not doing anything to protect them. This is the real problem. The pandemic laid bare so many things and upended so many of our assumptions about how the community works. So that's the first of these five crises. Physical health, public health, pandemic. The second one, the second crisis, is the scourge of mental health and addiction. Until recently, we lost far more people to opioid overdose over the course of the pandemic than we lost to COVID-19 itself. One in four of us will be formally diagnosed with mental illness at some point in our lives. Four out of four of us, every one of us, will struggle with our mental health at some point. That means in every single family, there is at least one person who has been diagnosed with formal mental illness. And yet we never talk about it. And yet we never think about how mental health is health. And we certainly don't think about what the real solutions to the scourge of addictions in our community is, which is, by the way, much worse than it has ever been.
There are many, many reasons for that. But they are reasons that we need to surface. They are reasons that we need to be able to talk about. And by the way, the COVID pandemic is not over. The mental health pandemic is not over. More people will die of COVID this year than died of COVID last year. Yet somehow, we seem to have decided as a community, sort of like in Encanto, the movie, we don't talk about COVID, no, 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 no. Somehow we've decided that the simplest of actions, wearing a mask, is too much to ask. Somehow we've decided, as governments in particular, and as policymakers, that we can live with this level of death and disease and despair. I don't know how that happened. I don't understand how that happened. If you had asked me two years ago what the next phase of the pandemic would look like, this is not what I would have said. I'm going to come back to that point because this is really how we need to start thinking about what kind of a future we're creating for ourselves. So public health, mental health, economic justice. Did you know that there was a new billionaire created every day during the pandemic? Every single day. The levels of inequity in income in our community are higher than they have ever been. I used to say they were higher than they've been since the Gilded Age, the time of the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. They're actually even higher now. During the pandemic, we were all introduced, too many of us for the first time, to some of our neighbors. Let me tell you about some of our neighbors. These are folks who wake up very early in the morning. They take the bus to work. They go to work at a long-term care center where they wake up our parents and grandparents, change their diapers, get them ready for breakfast. It's hard, physical work. It's difficult. They do that until lunch. And then after the lunch rush, because the private operator of their long-term care home has a financial incentive to cut the labor costs, they don't get full-time hours so that the employer doesn't have to pay health benefits. So after 30 hours, they take the bus across town to their other job. And that might be at a Tim Hortons. Likely it's at another long-term care center where they do the same thing again. Hard, menial work. After supper, they take the bus home. They get home late at night. They might have a few minutes with their own kids before they go to bed and do the same thing again the next day. Most of these neighbors of ours are women. Most of them are racialized women. Far too many of them are victims of what I call the greatest bait and switch in the history of the world, the Canadian immigration system. When we tell people, if you are educated, if you speak English, if you are able to have a profession, then you get the points you need to come to Canada. And when they get here, we say, except you can't work in your profession, except we don't recognize your degree. We don't recognize your credentials. Your English or your French is not good enough. But have you considered long-term care? And here's the thing. This didn't happen by accidents. 
It is by design. The system is designed to only work if there are people to be exploited. It's the deal. So I have nothing against those private providers of long-term care. In many cases, they do a much better job of the provision of the care than public sector organizations do. But in Alberta, they are paid precisely what it would cause the government to provide the same service. So in order to pay for the construction and the renovation of their sites, in order to provide a return to their owners, they have to cut costs. There's only two ways to cut costs in long-term care. Well, three, energy efficiency, labor, and food. So the system is designed to ensure that people are not paid a dignified and decent wage in order to be able to provide the services that are so critical. And even worse, during the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, we blamed these folks. How dare you work in two long-term care centers? You're spreading the virus. We're gonna ban that practice. But the system was designed that way. But here's the thing, folks. If you can design a bad system, you can design a good system. If this is by design, it means we can do better. And we must do better. So, public health, mental health, economic justice. The fourth one, environmental crisis. I come from Alberta. I believe very strongly in the role for the Canadian energy sector to play as a solution to providing energy for the world. I believe very strongly in it. But we must always also believe, because it's not a matter of belief, it's a matter of truth, that there is a carbon budget and we're running out. That the timeline of climate change is compressed into one person's lifetime, which is a crazy thing to say. Changes in the climate used to take centuries or millennia. Now they take years. There is a carbon budget. We're coming to the end of it, and we have to come to terms with how we ensure that people have what they need to get out of poverty. I believe that the provision of safe, clean, convenient energy is the number one poverty-fighting tool in the world. But at the same time, we have to do so in a way that preserves the planet. These are hard questions. And our political system has atrophied to the point where it's black and white, left and right, and there are no answers. You're this or you're that. And on big problems like the climate catastrophe, we cannot be this or that. We have to understand how we move forward together to get the right answer. And by the way, no throwing tomato soup and mashed potatoes at priests of art is not the way to get there. The fifth one, so public health, mental health, economic justice, environmental crisis, the fifth one and probably the most important, the one that underpins everything, is a real reckoning that we're coming to as a community on the question of equity. What does it mean to say that every single person in our community deserves the right to a dignified life, to a life of dignity. 
let me tell you that the summer of 2020 was a very, very difficult time for me. We were in the middle of managing the pandemic as best we could. When a man called George Floyd was murdered on the streets of Minneapolis. And that summer, people across the community came up and in a cri de coeur, in a crisis, saying we got to do better. We hosted an event at City Hall, something that we'd never done before. We had a formal public hearing on the issue of racism. And for several days, we just invited every Calgarian, and I underline every Calgarian, to come and tell us their story. And so I sat there in City Hall. It was the first time, a lot of people called in still because we were in the pandemic, but some people came in, and it was the first time we'd had people in City Hall in many, many months. And I listened to those stories. And at first, I was not at all surprised by what I heard. In fact, on our city council, 12 councillors were shocked by what they were hearing. There were three of us who were not surprised at all. You can probably guess what tied the three of us together. Then I asked myself, why am I not surprised? When I hear a 21-year-old black man telling us about how he was treated when he tries to go out on a Friday night, or how he's treated when he goes shopping at the Walmart. And these are the same stories that my friends and I used to tell ourselves 20 years ago. More than that, because I'm getting old. Why haven't things gotten better? This was incredibly hard for me. I have made my life, my career, standing on stages around the world, talking about the Canadian exceptionalism and pluralism talking about multiculturalism and diversity, holding Canada up as an example of what the world should be, of what the Aga Khan has called the most successful example of pluralism in human history. How can I simultaneously hold that thought that a city like Calgary could elect a guy who looks like me and worships like me and not think twice about it, with the fact that we've got a long way to go before we get to a truly anti-racist society. How do I hold those two thoughts in my head at the same time? During that time, I had the opportunity to visit a classroom, a social studies classroom, grade 12, at Western Canada High School by Zoom. One of the only good things about the pandemic is I got to do lots more classroom visits, all by Zoom. And so I was talking to these students at Western Canada High School. Western Canada High School is one of the best public schools in the country, located in the heart of downtown Calgary. So these kids come to downtown Calgary every day on one of our great streets. They go to school in one of the best systems there is. They have limitless potential. And as I was talking to these kids, I noticed something. And I noticed that so many of them, even in that school, in that school that is so diverse, where people come from every income and every background, they weren't all living the same life. So I asked a question. How many of you have gotten your driver's license recently? You know, people say Gen Z doesn't get their driver's licenses. Oh, in Calgary, they do. So 
bunch of them put up their hands. So I picked on one of them and I said, you know, hey, Travis, tell me about the lecture that your parents gave you when you got your driver's license. And he said, well, they told me I can never speed, that I should not ever have my phone out, that I can't text and drive, that of course I can't drink and drive, can't turn the radio up too loud, don't have too many friends in my car, and God help me if I scratch the car and come home. And I said, great. I got a very similar lecture when I got my driver's license. And then I pointed to another student and I said, tell me about yours. And she said, well, the same thing, but more. Always take your wallet out of your pocket or your purse first before you start driving. Put it somewhere where it's visible. So if you're pulled over, you're not reaching into your pocket. Do whatever you're told. It doesn't matter how unfair it is. You're told to get out of the car, get out of the car. You're told to lie on the ground, lie on the ground, we can fight later. Do not resist. Do not let being pulled over be the last thing you ever do. In Calgary, in a place where our police chief was the first police chief in the Western world to admit the history of institutional and systemic racism in his force. In a place where people have unlimited potential. Now, those of you in the audience who are non-white, I see a lot of nodding. You know this. This is the talk. It is the talk that every non-white parent has with their kids, even today. It is the talk that you dread. But it happens. It happens in Toronto. It happens in Calgary. It happens everywhere. Because ultimately, these folks are not living the same life. And one of these kids said to me, you know, your generation, I felt very old at that moment because I think I'm closer to them than, than to me. Your generation and the ones before made a deal. And the deal was this. As a non-white person in this community, the deal is we'll put up with it. That's it. We'll put up with it. We'll put up with getting extra attention from the security guard at the Walmart, even though he looks like us. We'll put up with having to deal with the police in a different way. We'll put up with the bouncer at the nightclub being a jerk. We'll put up with it because in return, we get to live here. In return, we get to live in this place of boundless potential where we will have the opportunity to be and do anything. And these kids were telling me, you know what? I don't think we like that deal anymore. I don't think that deal is fair anymore. I don't think we should live by those rules anymore. So what I know is that we've got a lot of work to do. That we have to move to this place of equity, of belonging, of dignity, of prosperity, of opportunity for everyone of anti-racism. But I'm not 100% sure what that world looks like. I've talked about racial equity. Of course, there's much more to it than that. The battle 
for true human rights for gender and sexually diverse people is not yet won. In particular, people who are living true and authentic lives as trans people are facing levels of discrimination I thought were not thinkable at this time in our society and in our history. Of course, we have to move from reconciliation with Indigenous peoples to what my friend Elder Casey Eagle Speaker calls reconciliation. Stop talking and get it done. That is hard. It means we have to reassess so much of what we hold dear in our communities. It means that we have to understand that we weren't always right, that there are other ways of thinking and doing. It's not easy. And I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what an anti-racist world is. But I think I kind of know how to get there. Now, this speech was supposed to be called In Defense of Democracy, and I've just spent several minutes depressing the heck out of you. But I want to tell you that even though I don't know how to get there, I think I, I don't know where we're going, I think I know how to get there. Or at least I have some ideas on what that path looks like. There's three things I want to talk to you about today. The first one is empathy. The second one is seva. Seva means service, selfless service. And the third one, let me get back to the third one. Let's talk about empathy. It is so hard to be empathetic right now because those people are jerks, whoever those people are. The levels of division and anger and rancor in our community is like nothing I've ever seen before. I was a politician for 11 years. It's a blink of an eye in a lifetime. It's a blink of an eye in the history of our place. But the way the world changed over those 11 years is extraordinary. And only now am I getting a little bit of the benefit of perspective on that. Too many of us in my former profession too many of us who are lucky enough to have microphones and podiums have been sowing this kind of division. What happens when your cosplay becomes real? What happens when you let the monster out of the closet and you don't know how to put it back? And this is precisely what we're seeing now. And if you're wondering about the design, I can tell you a little bit more. You see, in politics, you got to go fishing where the fish are. So in other words, you want to go to people who are already going to vote. You want to go to people who are engaged in the community. By the way, a lot of folks say that if you can only get people to vote, they become engaged citizens. I actually think it's the other way around. If you get people to be engaged citizens, then they vote. But that's why we have such good programs for seniors. I mean, I know it sounds cynical, but it's because seniors vote. And so what has happened over the years, over the last five to seven years, it's a very recent phenomenon, is that political strategists have discovered that you can activate a group of people who never voted before. 
These are people who are disaffected, people who are angry. Some might call them people who are haters. They've always been there. But for a long time, they felt isolated. They felt alone. And one of the things they never did was vote. Because ultimately, governments are all the same. They were cynical. What's the point? And what some political strategists figured out is that if you can get to these people, if you can activate these people as voters, they become a very powerful force. And traditional thinking is, well, they'll pivot. They'll attract the middle more. But those people vote now. So if they vote, even if they're only 20% of the population, but 100% of them vote, in times of low voter turnout, when a lot of folks think there's no option here that appeals to me, guess who wins? This is deliberate and it is designed. But the problem is the arsonist can't control the fire. And these folks have become increasingly radicalized. You know, the whole time I was mayor, I shouldn't say this, but I will. The whole time I was mayor, I was invited to so many conferences on the radicalization of young Muslim men in Canada and how we de-radicalize them. Where are the conferences on the radicalization of white people? Where... Where are the very serious conversations about how we make sure that disaffected young men and women, more men than women, but more men, but both, feel part of the community and feel that they can build instead of destroy? How do we help people come into the conversation of making things better rather than watching it burn? That's where empathy comes in. And I know a lot of us may feel like, I don't got any more empathy. And maybe it is true. Maybe there are people who are so extreme that you just need to cut them out. But the rest of the community, how do we come together? Which brings me to my second point. If you've heard me speak in the last 11 years, you've learned one word in Sanskrit. And that word is seva. It means service. More specifically, it means selfless service. And so I truly believe that in our service, we find our community. One of the first things I did when I was mayor that for Canada's sesquicentennial, still my favorite word, it's better in French, sesquicentennial. <laughs> Sounds sexy and dangerous. <laughs> for Canada's sesquicentennial, I took a program we started in Calgary and we launched it across the country. It's called Three Things for Canada. And I took it with me when I left the mayor's office. Quite literally, all it is is a big foam number three and it lives in my basement now. But Three Things for Canada is a very, very simple program. It asks every one of us as citizens to do three things for the community every year, at least three things for the community. It could be small, shovel your neighbor's walk. It could be big, join a local nonprofit. It doesn't matter if it's big or small, what matters is that it's seva. What matters is that it is service. And when we do that, when we get to know the community better, when we understand that real change in the community doesn't come from exceptionally handsome ex-politicians making speeches, I'm sure those people exist. Maybe the former mayor of Edmonton. <laughs> but it actually comes from every one of us. Change happens because everyday people make it happen. Everyday people with our everyday hands, our everyday hearts, our everyday minds, and in this day and age especially, 
our everyday voices. Using those voices to make true change is what we do, and we do that through our seva. We do that through our service. So I said there were three things. Empathy, seva. The third one is love. A love for our community, a love for one another, a love for something greater than what we are together. Thank you all. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. During the 2021 federal election, the Samara Center deployed something called SamBot, a machine learning bot that detects and tracks toxic messages on Twitter. It analyzed 2.5 million tweets in both English and French over a 36-day period that were directed at or tagging nearly 300 federal candidates. And the bot labeled them according to specific categories. Sexually explicit content, just over 144,000. Profanity, just over 200,000. Identity attacks, slightly over 212,000. And finally, over 290,000 tweets contained threats against political candidates. These findings point to what many of us already intuit that toxic political discourse is increasing, that it poisons political debate and can actually lead to real-world harm. And it's in this sobering context that the Samara Centre for Democracy held a public lecture at the Toronto Public Library and invited the former mayor of Calgary, Nahed Nenshi, to deliver it. After his talk, I sat down with Nahed Nenshi on stage to talk about the need for public service and building resilience. So many questions and so little time. What I found myself thinking about throughout your speech, the, the one question that came, kept coming to me is, do you find it easier to be optimistic about our democracy now that you're outside of politics? No, it's so hard. Um, okay, that's the answer. I'm very good at short <laughs> what, what, answers. Why? No, I'm not why? good at short answers. <laughs> Because when you're living it, you understand the nuance to it. You understand that, oh, some people are going to think this is a really dumb decision, but there are reasons behind it. And when you're outside and you're experiencing it the way others are experiencing it, you can see how it's easy for folks to be cynical. Mm -hmm. Now, look, there are bad players. There are people who are there to watch the world burn, as I said. But the vast, vast majority of people in public life just want to do good for their community. 
But then they find that they might be stymied by the system. Mm -hmm. Some will complain that they were stymied by the media. They're stymied by the process. They're stymied by the other players. And this is what gets really difficult. So I do recommend everyone, if you haven't read Tragedy in the Commons, the most shocking thing about Tragedy in the Commons, and I haven't read House Lives. I need to read it. But the most shocking thing about Tragedy in the Commons is all these people went into Parliament wanting to do good. And almost every one of them was disappointed when they came out, feeling that they were not able to achieve what they wanted to achieve. The Samara Center for Democracy, who during the 2021 federal election in Canada commissioned research into the toxic messages that politicians were getting on Twitter and just on Twitter. Mm -hmm. It's a Sandbot project. Many of you have heard of it. It monitored over 2.5 million tweets in a period of five weeks that were sent to the accounts of 300 political candidates. I don't have to tell you this. This is a reality you yourself lived. So nearly 150,000 contained sexually explicit content. Over 200,000 featured profanity. I can read you the rest of the list. Please don't. But the question is... What impact does that have, that kind of thing have, on the quality and the current makeup of the political class that rules this country? Are we getting the right people in those roles? Let me say something super controversial, because everyone's going to expect me to say it scares people off, which it does. But the people who are left are strong. So when you look at my successor as mayor of Calgary, she has to deal with crap that I never had to deal with. You know, she's a woman of color. She's a very strong woman of color. And so take what I had to deal with it, and for women in politics, multiply it by a million. I never got sexually threatening messages. But she's so good and she's so strong, right? She's able to go beyond that. But you know what? She shouldn't have to. My last note to her was, you don't need anybody to fight your battles for you. You're stronger than I am but I'm happy to punch people in the throat for you if you want. (laughs) And she replied saying, I can do my own punching. But, so that's part of it. But you want more people. So, you know, I got into politics because I was, believe it or not, trying to convince more diverse people and particularly more women to be involved in municipal politics. I spent a year and a half going for lunches and dinners with people, trying to convince them to run in the upcoming municipal election. I struck out every single time. And for 11 years, I've been telling the same joke. I particularly struck out with women. I am very used to striking out with women. (laughs) But this was different, right? And women in particular would say to me, it's divisive, it's angry, I don't see a place for myself. But then they would ask me simple questions that no man has ever asked me who's interested in running for politics, which is, can I pick my kids up from school? And the answer is actually, yeah. It's a pretty flexible job, except if you're, you know, in Parliament or you're in a council meeting. We would never think to advertise that to people. And so part of that is systemic, part of it is deep, but you're right. Part of it has gotten much, much worse. And a lot of this is bots and trolls and not real people. Yes. You know, I did the same thing that uh, my friend Michelle Rempel-Garner, MP for Calgary, she and I argue a lot, but we did the same thing on Twitter, which is we stopped accepting replies which has made my life a million times better. But because the bots, for some reason, mm-hmm. don't click on the quote tweet button. They haven't figured that out yet. Oh, I shouldn't have said that out loud. So, so, but it made life so much better, right? right? And so you've got to be able to get over it. And you have to be able to remember one thing. To this day, 
a year after being out of politics, I can walk down the street in Toronto, I can walk down the street in Calgary, and the single most common thing anyone says to me by far, by far, is thank you for your service. Thank you for what you did. And my favorite, favorite thing to hear is if someone says, you know, I really disagree with that decision you made, but I understand why you made it. Right. And the vast majority of people are like that. And somehow you have to be able to focus on that and not the divisiveness. But those people also have to feel like they belong in the system, that they want to vote, that they want to be engaged, that they don't feel crowded out right. by the angry, loud voices. Right. But that toxicity doesn't just affect the choice of politician, or as you say, their resilience or their, their ability to remain in the system, but it also affects the process. And it affects us as voters. Yes. And so Maria Ressa, Nobel laureate, the Philippines journalist, recently on, on this stage or on our stage, she is also an optimist like you. She said that we are in the last two minutes of democracy. Wow. That with about 30 elections to be held in the next two years under the thickening cloud of disinformation and with fewer and fewer people living truly in democracy, democratic societies, mm -hmm. we are entering a firmly authoritarian era. What's the evidence to the contrary in your mind? No, she's right. Um, and it's something that you're seeing around the world. But the, ch the difference is whether people, citizens around the world value it enough. I read on Twitter, ironically, recently, someone who said, the mistake that most thinkers make is they think people care about democracy. Whereas many, many people would say, hey, if I could have cheaper rent or lower taxes, little authoritarianism might be okay. Mm -hmm. And so this is really the issue. It is really about again, igniting the spark in people to understand that the community is in their own hands and they have the ability to change it. And every time we see quote unquote good news in Brazil, for example, in the recent elections, even in, depending on your politics, depending on what we, what we saw in the midterm elections in the United States, I think there is an opportunity that is being too squandered by people on all sides of the spectrum. I don't say both sides because I don't believe in a simple left-right continuum. But all sides of the political debates, there's an opportunity that's being squandered, which is to appeal to people's better selves mm. instead of their pettiness. So, you know, I'll give you an example. In the last election in the province of Quebec, there was actually very little opposition to the blatantly unconstitutional and racist bills that we have seen coming out of that province because you know, surveys show that 70% of people are in favor of banning religious garb for public sector workers. And so politicians are too scared. We have a national party leader who wears a turban who himself could not be a judge in Quebec and yet won't speak out strongly against this. People are too scared. You know, I'll tell you what, if my experience proves anything, it's that really long-winded politicians can still be successful. <laughs> but if it proves anything else, it proves that when you can help people appeal to who they want to be, you can be successful. And I guarantee you one thing. If we had one politician in Quebec in this last election who had spoken out for the basic human dignity of people, they would have won. The question that keeps coming to my mind, and I'm sure the minds of many people here, though, you know, you talk about empathy and seva and love. And yet, how do you bridge divides when we can't even agree on what the common good is and what the definition of freedom is? 
The second one is hard because that word has been co-opted in a way that is, I think, frankly, dangerous. But I like how you phrased the first one, if we can agree on what the common good is. I think we can. I think if we reach out to people and say, you want to live in a community where your kids have more opportunities than you had. You want to live in a community that is prosperous. You want, and, and I use the word prosperity rather than wealth, but you want to live in a community that is prosperous. You want to live in a community where we look after our land, air, and water. People don't disagree on those things. We disagree on the means mm -hmm. of how to get there, but we have to remind people that ultimately my neighbor's strength is my strength. My neighbor's success is my success. Those are the first words of Calgary's anti-poverty strategy. But it also means the corollary is also true. My neighbor's failure is my failure. And we have to be able to come back to that. And it doesn't matter whether you're right wing or left wing. It doesn't even matter whether you believe in mask mandates or you believe COVID is a real thing. What really matters is that you want to live in a society where people are healthy. You want to live in a society where people can grow old in a way where they still have dignity. And I think that we need to appeal much more to that. It feels like the days of sunny ways are so long ago. It's only seven years ago. Mm -hmm. But we need to figure out how to get back to helping people understand that and helping people understand that our differences politically are not what defines us. You know, for 12 years, I've been wearing purple every day. I'm wearing a purple tie today. Thank you, radio listeners. Um, and it is not because it brings out the color of my eyes. Well, it's not just because it brings out the color of my eyes. It's because it's red and blue. So my statement is that we are not defined by our tribes. We're not defined by our ideology. We're defined by our common humanity. And that's why I'm optimistic, because we're still human beings. We don't want to live in a state where we're fighting with one another all the time. And, you know, sometimes I say, you know, if you are particularly uh, politically correct or woke, as they say these days, one word that you hate is tolerance. Mm. Right? You don't want to be tolerated. You want to be respected. You want to be admired. Um, you want to be accepted. But sometimes I ask myself, is tolerance actually the higher virtue? So if I'm living next to neighbors who worship in a different way, or if I'm living next to neighbors who are trans or 2S, LGBTQ+, maybe I'm never going to love them. Maybe I'm never going to invite them for dinner but I don't want them to be fired from their job because of who they are. I want their kids to go to school with my kids and do well. Maybe that's the virtue that we need to be pushing for instead of asking people to go into places where they are not comfortable, which hardens them even more. I was really struck by the statement you made and certainly could relate to this personally when you talked about the generation that came before and said, we'll put up with it. And the new generation saying, you know, we don't want that deal anymore. What's What's at the end of your fear horizon when you see that play out over time? I'm actually very hopeful. Hmm. I'm very hopeful that we will be able to set aside the systemic barriers that define racism in this country. And this is an important thing that I don't think enough people understand. I think it was Justice Murray Sinclair who said, institutional racism is what's left when you get rid of the racists. And I think this is a critical thing for us to understand is that individual Canadians have made the leap by and large almost entirely to accepting diversity and multiculturalism. But our systems aren't there yet. And this is the hard part. So, you know, when we went through the anti-racism work at the city of Calgary, we came out with a threefold commitment. 
to the citizens of Calgary. The first is the city of Calgary is the second largest employer in the city. I had almost 20,000 colleagues at the city of Calgary. So we were going to be an exemplary anti-racist employer. We were going to remove barriers, particularly to hiring and promotion. You know, one thing we found was that the city, we have you know, it's a public sector organization, right? It should be very woke, if you want to use that word. We hired a very diverse workforce. But the entire time I was the mayor, and look what I look like, I was the only non-white person in senior management meetings. Of my top 50 employees at the city of Calgary, most of the time there wasn't a single visibly non-white person. And so why aren't we promoting people? What barriers are in place? Because I can't believe none of them are any good at their job. What barriers are in place for doing that? So number one, better employer. Number two, a real commitment to policing and figuring out how to do policing in a new way that is more accepting of people's difference. Still keeps us safe, still uses resources well. You still got to have guys with guns going after the bad guys. But how do we deal with mental health? How do we deal with addiction? How do we deal with diversity? How do we deal with difference? And then the third piece was the city of Calgary, capital C, capital C, as a convener of the city of Calgary, small c, as a convener to bring people together to talk about their own experiences and to figure out what changes can be made in order to make the community better. So I'm deeply optimistic that the kids are all right. I'm deeply optimistic that they understand it. So I think the kids are going to be all right, and I think we're going to get there. But the rest of us got to come along too. We do have one last question for you. Yes. Three mayoral terms, difficult debates, a pandemic, all those things that you've been through over these past, past more than a decade. Can you point to one experience to, or something that you learned in your time in, your, in office that tells you that our political system can thrive? Oh gosh, so many. You know, the great thing about being in municipal politics is people have to get along. And so the vast, vast majority of things I did as mayor, you'd never know it from reading the horse race coverage in the newspaper, but the vast majority of things I did as mayor were passed unanimously. You know, on my council, we had people from every corner of the ideological spectrum. Mother Earth will save us all, Trump Party of Canada. And those people would have to come together on stuff. And to me, that was really the power of local democracy. But you know, the example, of course, that I always give almost 10 years ago, we had the costliest natural disaster in Canadian history. We evacuated 100,000 people, the largest non-wartime evacuation in Canadian history. And through that all, in the midst of the crisis, I kept getting emails and social media messages and phone messages from people asking what I call the most Canadian of all questions. How can I help? And I have never forgotten the day when we gave people two hours notice to show up at McMahon Stadium in Calgary to volunteer. And I was shocked that why are we giving people only two hours notice? And the public servant said to me, well, your worship. And when they call me your worship, it means they're about to talk to me like a six-year-old. <laughs> well, your worship, the deal is we don't actually know how to deal with these volunteers. So we're deliberately not giving anyone any notice. We think a couple hundred people will show up. We'll figure out how to process them. And then we'll be better for tomorrow. And I said, 100, 200 people are not going to show up. But I suppose I should show up. 
and say hello to the 50 people who were there and say thank you. So I went. And I got to the parking lot of McMahon Stadium, our football stadium. There was no PA system. One of my colleagues from the Calgary Emergency Management Agency was standing on a folding table attempting to address the crowd of 5,000. And I pushed him off the table, <laughs> got up on the table, reached into a nearby fire truck to borrow the speakers on the truck. And as I was doing that, my colleague down below, I love public servants, but sometimes they get a little public servancy. <laughs> and he said, send them home. And I said, what? And he said, we don't know what to do with them. And we've run out of forms. <laughs> so I looked out at the crowd. I took a very deep breath. Visions of municipal lawyers danced in front of my eyes. There were young people and old people. There were people in work boots and Birkenstocks all there. And they all just wanted to help. And so I said, all right, folks, we've run out of forms. There's no more room in the school buses. But you know the neighborhoods that were badly hurt. Just go. Just go help. Help in whatever way you can. And you might find that you don't know what to do. It'll become apparent pretty quick. And they went. And they went, and they went, and they went, and they went, and thousands and tens of thousands of people. There was a day when there were more volunteers from Calgary helping clean up the town of High River than there are people who live in High River. And that was the moment that I knew that the power of humanity is what makes the difference. So the question now for all of us is how do we engage that power and that resilience of human beings on the silent floods that we see every day? on the flood of mental health and addiction problems, on the flood of environmental crisis, on the flood of economic justice and of equity. That's our goal, and that's what we have to be able to figure out. And that, however, is what keeps me optimistic every day. You've been listening to In Defense of Democracy, featuring the former mayor of Calgary, Nahed Nanshi. The talk was put on by the Samara Centre for Democracy and was recorded in front of a live audience at the Toronto Public Library. This episode was produced by Nahid Mustafa. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.